This is Comic Geek Speak episode 1511. Introducing the Golden Age Hawkman, the Fly, and the Falcon. I'm Shane Kelly. I'm Adam Murdo. And I'm Chris Eberly. Welcome to the show. Uh, here we are bringing you once again another installment of our introducing format, reintroduced Magnificent. By, by us just a few months ago. Well, I guess it's more like half a year ago now. But uh, anyway, after a long hiatus, we brought it back, gave you three Android characters. And uh, here we are doing the same thing again. The introducing format is three characters, three publishers. Three decades. We look at their first appearances, pick them apart a little bit, uh, maybe do a little bit of discussion about how that differs from what would come later. Uh, but but uh, for the most part, just trying to isolate uh, that moment in the character's history, the very first moment, and uh, just uh, take some joy in that. It's uh, Peter Rios innovation, and we're happy to uh, bring it back to you again here on, on the Comic Geek Speak podcast. Now, before we get too far, though, I want to mention that this episode is sponsored by Discount Comic Book Service. That's dcbservice.com. Go to their website for all your pre-ordering needs. Get a hold of a copy of previews. Go on their website and make your selections. Pay for it at the end and have it shipped right to your door. Um, as always, on their front page, they have specials. And a couple that I took note of is Secret Six Number 1 coming back to the DC Universe, half off at $1.49. Marvel has, again, 50% off trades and hardbacks, and their bundle packages. We always love their bundle packages. Top of the list is a Valiant bundle package still going strong, an Alien Predator bundle package, Darwin Cook variant bundle package. Boy, do those covers look neat. For oh, DC no. Comics, um, that's half off. I think it's at forty two seventy seven. There's the Kids Bundle from DC, which I always get, and I read them, and the kids read them. An Image Bundle. Try the four newest Image issues at 50% off. There's a Marvel Kids Bundle. Ooh, that's interesting. Huh. That's new, so I'm going to be snagging that up, too, for the kiddies. A Vertigo Bundle. That's all I see for the bundles, so that's great. Um, boy, a Marvel Kids Bundle. That's excellent. I was hoping that they'd get around to doing one of those. So go to DCB Service. Dot com for your pre-ordering needs. Check them out. We've been using them for a long time. We will be using them for as long as life exists. That's DCBService.com. <laughs> That's quite a commitment, my friend. Long live DCBS. Hey, why not, man? If it wasn't for them, I couldn't get comics. Indeed. Hmm. Yep. Service like that deserves to be used unto death. That's right. All right. Now, what we have for you this time out in the introducing uh, format is a trio of uh, characters with wings, winged warriors. That's that's the hook. Indeed. As I said, three characters, three publishers, three decades, three first appearances, but there's always a common theme among them. Those are the rules of the game. And uh, this time out, what we've got for you is the uh, gold, in the chronological order from the 1940s, the Golden Age Hawkman, Carter Hall. His first appearance in Flash Comics number one. Uh, we've got from the 1950s, uh, Archie, uh, the Fly character created by Joe Simon and uh, Jack Kirby. So we've got his first appearance here to talk about. And the first appearance of the Falcon from 1969, pages of Captain America number 117. Those are our three uh, topics of discussion, our three inspirational introductions to investigate. 
And uh, we're going to take it from the top here and with uh, on the DC side of things, uh, Carter Hall's first appearance from Flash Comics number one. Shane, would you like to uh, do the honors here and give us a kind of a summary of the, the Hawkman's first appearance there? Sure. Hawkman starts out it, – it looked very Flash Gordon-ish to me. I just want to say that right off the bat, the way it was drawn. We start out with Carter being in his library and a tagline, which I did not realize this. Again, this is the first time I was reading this, that he's a wealthy collector of weapons and a research scientist. I've only ever known him as the museum curator that we find about, out about much later in life. I know his history was very convoluted. Huh. Um, there's some elements of this story that I was surprised made it through and were either corrected or reintroduced in the stuff that I know. So it was kind of uh, um, very heartening to find that they paid reverence to it in a proper fashion, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, Carter acquires this dagger and gets kind of thrown back in time in his mind to a time when he is first um, in the past when he's first killed by this said dagger um, with uh, a guy named Kolar. Is he recurring in Hawkman's history? I don't or think so. Just for this issue. He's just a random flunky whom uh, the, the real villain minion, Hath, yeah. Hath Set is instructing to. Uh... Okay. So at the hands of Hath Set, he has Kolar kind of beating Carter and um, they do some battle. Carter escapes and ends up finding Shiara, which uh, surprised me too that um, it was quite so easy. The, the story reads very quickly going from part to part to part. And in a few minutes, everything was resolved kind of stuff. That's the golden age for you. Though. Mm-hmm. Much simpler. Yeah. And, and, and I haven't read much golden age. So I was, I was just a little bit surprised. <laughs> like, um, it ends up that Hathset ends up killing Carter with the dagger um, as well as Shiara. And that Carter makes a, a vow to to come back and get Hathset, um, which is the recurring theme of, of Hawkman and Hawkgirl's lives being reincarnated over and over, finding their love and then end up dying at some point and then being reincarnated, finding themselves again and again and again all throughout time, which that part, that part stayed all through his life. So then after the little times past type episode where he finds Shiara gets killed by Hasset with the dagger. He's thrown back into the present kind of realizes what this dagger is that he's acquired and, and kind of wants to clear his head. So he goes outside for a walk and runs into the modern Shiara. They somewhat recognize each other and then go off on an adventure to find, gosh, what did they try to find there? I lost my place in who, Hathset comes back. Does he steal the dagger from them? No, he doesn't steal the dagger. Oh, uh, yeah. Hathset has been reincarnated as uh, the evil, the evil doctor scientist. Anton Haster. <laughs> now, in these first few pages, Carter already dons his Hawkman guise. It, it, are we meant to understand <laughs> that he is Hawkman as well all this time? Uh, no, he just happened to have this uh, hawk-based costume lying around. He, okay. he, he thinks to himself, you know, I, I must have known this day would come. Okay. <laughs> How? I don't know. And he already has the, the Nith medal as well. well so. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So this is his true first appearance. Nothing of this was ever mentioned before that. So he already no. has the Nth medal. He already knows what it does and just dons the costume and uses it. We have to remember that the, 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 when you're dealing with Hawkman, and by the way, uh, Pants Peter and, and uh, you, Shane, yeah. did a wonderful Hawkman spotlight several years ago, which – masterfully breaks down one of the most convoluted comic book character histories in print 
And I think when you read a story like this, you got to kind of take it for what it is because if you think about everything that happened afterwards, you can get you can get lost in the weeds very very quickly. Um, sorry to me to no no that's way. fine. Um, because I read this and you know it's it's a it's a really basic story of of Carter getting thrown back in time, realizing who he was, who Shiara was, running into her in the present, going after Hathset's reincarnation, battling him in his lab to stop his evil plot. Um, and saving Shiara, which he has also captured, I guess realizing who she is, he um, Hathset does, the reincarnated Hathset, um, captures her and tries to use her as well. Carter comes in with yet another cloak of nth metal to wrap around Shiara to save her. And that's pretty much the end of the story. I don't even really see what happens. The, the scientist dies and then Shiara and... Carter are, are reunited, and, and that's where that issue ends. And I imagine their next adventures is Shiara and Carter team up in, in his subsequent appearances. Uh, a long way down the line, Shire eventually uses that uh, extra cloak of nth metal, fashions it into wings, and becomes Hawkgirl. But uh, that, that doesn't happen right away. So when, when they end here and he saved her, that's all you see of Shiara for a while. And it's just Carter. As oh a no, she, she's, she's around. Okay. Issues. she's okay. a part she's, of the strip as a love she's interest. Not, she's not Hawk Girl. Okay, yeah. She just keeps the the cloaker, at least fashions it later. Um, much simpler story than what I thought it would be. A, a nice, easy read, and and the artwork is indicative of the times. And I, again, especially the times past type story insert of of this looks very Flash Gordon. I agree with that to me, yeah. and it and it's gorgeous. It's very well drawn. Um. The fact that Hathset, Hawkgirl, uh, Hawkman, Carter, and Shiara, their elements, the nth metal, the garb, the dagger, the curse, all that stuff that I know of Hawkman and Hawkgirl from everything I have read and enjoyed of it are are laid out in this short story, this first introduction, which I was surprised about that, that like Jeff Johns and James Robinson, when they did their run, really incorporated that. And, I, you know, as, as Peter had... <clears throat> excuse me, had always said, really fixed a very convoluted history, which I don't know much about a lot of the in-between stuff other than it was, incredibly, it was convoluted. incredibly convoluted. Yeah. Nobody could give a, 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 a straightforward answer to, well, this is what Carter and Shiara were. Mm -hmm. And at some point, Carter dies and somebody else takes over. Which is well, Hector. then you're getting into the Katar Hall and, from, from Thanagar. And that all that stuff then there was very a, Then there was a, a Thanagarian spy who was pretending to be Hawkman oh, who was in the invasion storyline with another a fake hawk girl who was like an earthly pawn. So, when, so <laughs> when, they brought it, when, when they brought it back, they really looked back to these early issues for a foundation. Well, what, I, what I found impressive about it, because I, I had never read this story before. I knew I knew the basics of it. I never actually read it, so it was fun to, to do that. And like you said, it's very golden age. Like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Here, yeah, the, here, in out, here's done. The, Twelve pages in and out, and, and it's done. And that's longer but, than a lot of golden age yeah. strips were, really. But it makes you appreciate, as you were saying, what James Robinson and Jeff Johns did because as you read this, if you know anything about Hawkman, your reaction is, oh, this is very familiar because – this is the basic origin that they've gotten a lot of mileage out of in in the modern incarnation. I don't mean the crappy New Fifty Two. I mean the the last <laughs> modern incarnation of Hawkman in the old DC universe. That magnificent series that Robinson and Johns and Rags Morales did. Um, they really got a lot of mileage out of this origin. The whole 
uh, Egyptian uh, uh, origin and, and, and Hathset and the curse and the reincarnation. Uh, so from that perspective, uh, this is very pleasing for me to read because it made me appreciate even more so what the modern creators have done. And I love when, when a creator acknowledges a character's past and doesn't discard it. They find a way and to make it work and to respect the history. And, and I think they did that here, although I was amused by the fact that you had blonde-haired Caucasians in ancient Egypt. <laughs> well, um, yeah. But it was yeah. the 1940s when yeah, they did this. So. Later versions kind of shuffled that under the rug. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it lasted all the way up to the 80s. You know, yeah. Roy Thomas's uh, reverence for of course. keeping as many of the original details intact yeah, as and possible. And I would never knock his reverence. But, but uh, yeah, at post-crisis, when they retold Carter Hall's origin, they would yeah. uh, they would show Prince Khufu, his Egyptian self, yeah. as, as you know, dark-skinned and dark-haired. What did you think of this, Merck? Uh, well, uh, short and sweet, as you said. More, it, it, it is golden age storytelling, after all. It's, it's the creators of these strips never knew exactly how long they were going to have Very to true. tell yeah. these stories, and so, so they had to, you know, get everything out on the table as quickly and they as wanted possible. To, and they wanted to pound out as many pages as they possibly could, going from story to story. So, and so the. Yeah, the recap of the origin happens in very quick succession, and so Carter Hall learns of his uh, ancient Egyptian uh, past life in the span of, uh, what is it? Three or four pages. It's not. Yep, yep, four pages exactly. And uh, then suddenly he he walks out the door and says, "Mm, I think I'm going to go for a stroll now to clear my head after having this uh, flashback, after touching this dagger that killed me thousands of years ago. And he just happens to run into, literally, right outside outside his front uh, steps, uh, this young girl who happens to look exactly like uh, the young lady he'd, uh, no, she's not uh, a blonde-haired Caucasian. The later stories actually uh, uh, recolor Shaira Sanders' hair. As red. Oh, really? But here in this okay. first story, she's it's, it's red oh, and black. Right, of course, yeah. So she looks uh, pretty much exactly like the uh, Shayara of the of ancient Egypt. Whereas Carter, well, well, he looks like Khufu too. But you, you yeah. can, looking back, you can sort of rationalize that as uh, this is Carter Hall, the twentieth century Carter Hall, envisioning his ancient Egyptian self, which is yeah. exactly like he does now. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, when when they go after Haster and and he subsequently dies, does does Haster himself come back later, or does Hathsek get reincarnated in somebody else that becomes their main foe? Yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, Roy Thomas, uh, oh, again, bless him, he, he can't live anything in the Golden Age alone. Uh, he uh, brought back uh, Anton Haster, the 1940s okay. incarnation of Hathset, uh, as a, a bad guy for a couple of issues of All-Star Squadron. Okay. So you know, at, at the very end of this story, uh, Haster is saying, perhaps I shall not, not die. Who knows? And uh, Roy Thomas shows us that he didn't die at that point. He came back and menaced the Hawks one more time. Uh, but then Roy Thomas introduced his, uh, well, uh, end of the 20th century, like 1980s reincarnated self, um, the, a woman named uh, Helene Astar. Okay. And uh, Half Set showed up in that form a couple of times in the uh, 90s Hawkman series as well. Hmm. And then Jeff Johns came up with his own incarnation of uh, – I'm, I'm just now read up to that point in mm-hmm. Johns and Robinson's Hawkman series when uh, the, uh, that series' version of uh, Half Set shows up. Are you enjoying the series? An art collector named Christopher Roderick. And yes, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Good. I wish it would have gone longer in that series before changing to the – Hawk Girl site, yeah, which, which I think was really which was not as good. Yeah. Mm, well, the entire the, the cream of that series is reprinted in a nice omnibus. Oh yes, which I have. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. So yes, uh, so yeah, Shaira 
As I'm a little disappointed that she didn't have more to do in this first story. She's just well, she's just kind of the damsel, the pretty in distress. face. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally the damsel in distress. Yeah, so it was a. It would be another, I don't know, two years before she ended up uh, going into action. Two as years? Hawkeye. That long? Wow. Some, well, something like that. I'm not sure of the exact period of time, but uh, hmm. it's a while. But now does she, does she know that Carter's Hawkman as her, as his adventures unfold in these early issues? Uh, well, that I don't know. I, I haven't read Flash Comics number two, so I don't I – mean, she's curious to see that. She's under the influence. I mean – you wondered aloud earlier, Shane, about how uh, Shaira got mixed up with uh, Doctor Haster here. Yeah. He uh, he goes he, he kneels before the altar of the uh, the Hawk God Anubis, which is huh? flagrantly inaccurate yes, if you is. know anything about <laughs> Egyptian mythology. Egyptian had Anubis had the head of a jackal. Yes, so the Hawk God would probably be Horus, um, and who is not really associated with evil or anything like that. Anubis isn't really an evil god either. He's just uh, Lord of the Underworld, right. which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But anyway, in this story, Anubis has the head of a hawk, and he's a bad guy. And uh, Dr. Haster is praying to him, and uh, he burns incense. And uh, somehow those incense fumes are magically wafted towards Shaira, and she falls into a trance and comes right. to him voluntarily. Because he's trying to contact Shaira, the, the ancient Egyptian Shaira's reincarnation. By the way, I found it interesting, Merton. I'm sorry to cut you off there. No, no, not at all. They call it ninth metal, right? In this story, not mm-hmm. nith metal, not nth metal. Yeah, it's, nth metal it, it is yeah. ninth metal, yeah. and it is not Thanagarian in origin, as yes, far as anyone knows. No Thanagarian. See, and and that's weird because I I must I didn't even pick that up when I read it. I just read nth metal because you're used to because it. I'm used to it. Even with my glasses on, I just oh, it's nth metal. Okay, no, but in the golden age, it was ninth. I metal. did the same thing initially until I read it. Huh. Just now again. Yeah, I think it was in the 90s that they changed the really? spelling to nth metal. That long? Yeah, I think I think it was part of the, the Bill Messner Loeb's series. I may be wrong about that also, but uh, I, I can – I'm almost sure I can recall reading a couple of issues of that when they referred to it as nth metal. Hmm. But so anyway, yeah, no uh, Thanagarian influence here whatsoever. That didn't come along until the Silver Age. And uh, no mention of any other inc- reincarnations besides. No. Just uh, – Ancient Egypt, Khufu and Shaira, and 1940, Carter Hall and Shaira. Well, last name isn't revealed here, but it's Sanders. And and I kind of guess that's because this is the first time Carter realized he was reincarnated from that flashback of the dagger. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's no hint that there were any other past lives in between those two, but eventually, yeah. you know, that's, that's so sort do of do we enjoy the story? I I did in yeah. that it was it 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 really shows the the parts of the Hawkman story like I said that I know of really were present in this first appearance story yep. um, more so than a lot of other first appearances I've read and what ones we've done on the show that I knew before this they really did a great job once they cleaned up Hawkman and went forward with his book that I knew they really did a nice job of paying. Respect I to agree. this first Absolutely. first appearance. Yep. I just read a Hawk file, a Hawkman Secret Files and Origins issue from 2002. The time bubble. <laughs> yes, it's it's coming. Indeed. Uh, in which uh, Hath sets, you know, the, the Christopher Roderick guy I mentioned finds the very dagger. It even looks. Oh, okay. ah. It's kind of drawn the same way that it is in this in Flash Comics number one here. Hmm, I don't remember that. Yep. So, uh, so is it, yeah, yes, uh, Johns and uh, company uh, definitely were paying. Close attention. Did you to, enjoy the story? To the early stories. It's a, a little slapdash for me. 
on. Uh, I mean, this is the very early golden age. This yeah. was cover dated uh, January of 1940. Yeah. And, so that uh, means it came out at the end of 1939. Yeah. yeah. So wow. It's, wow. Uh, My are, parents weren't even born yet. Yes. Yeah. Comics were a very young medium. Superheroes were a very young genre. Yeah. Everybody was still finding their feet. It was a very young Gardner Fox that wrote the script. And David Neville was the penciler, I believe. Um, Dennis Neville. Dennis Neville. I'm yeah. sorry. Who's, Dennis Neville. Uh, with uh, drawing this very, as, as Shane observed, very f- uh, Flash Gordon-like yeah. artwork. You know, apologies to Alex Raymond, as indeed so many of these Golden Age artists well, yeah. owed apologies to Alex Raymond. <laughs> Um, you know, if they were doing anything sci-fi, outer space adventure, it just, it looked like that. It it had to harken back to to that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, I I I, I can't honestly say that I enjoyed it uh, too deeply. But then there's only twelve pages of it. I don't know how, what depth of enjoyment I can get out of it. But yeah, in these very early golden age days, you can see that they're just these very young writers and artists are just kind of riffing and. Uh, uh, borrowing heavily from whatever other cultural influences are available sure. to them, film serials and and so forth. Now, now I didn't read the whole rest of the issue that this first appearance appears in. I paged through it. W- what I liked about it, and and I know we've tried this in in more modern days. The problem with with doing what this issue does today is the more stories, the more pages, the bigger, the more costs. Back then, while this is pricey for its time, I'm sure. It's still a more interesting way to present comics that were, again, new at this time than today trying to do an anthology series like this where people really, as much as I would like to see a great one, really aren't interested in anthology series like this. Anytime a company tries one, they don't seem to go over very well. Well, they're also very expensive. They are very expensive. uh, What was the one Vertigo did that Dave King did a story in? Remember that one? It was a one-shot anthology. Hmm. How it was long just ago? recent, wasn't it? Within yeah, the last year yeah, or Dave, two. Dave, I apologize if you're listening. I can't remember the title of the book. But mm. I think that had a series. I think it was like $8. Yeah. Right? Because, oh. you know, it had a, had a lot of stories so in it. Mystery in Space or Strange no, Adventures or Time Warp. Well, well, Might have been Time Warp. Might have been Time Warp. Tom King. Yes. I said Dave King. You Tom said Dave King. King. Tom King. Yeah, I'm pretty Tom sure it's. King. I'm sorry. Tom. It would be Time Warp then because yeah, he did uh, yeah. one of those stories yeah. about going back in time and killing Hitler. So. It's tough. The economics. Yeah. You know, I mean, these were these were 10 cents. Mm hmm. So, I mean, for me, I find this stuff fascinating because it's like an historical timepiece to see how comics were being done. And just, you know, if you read it with the sensibility of a 21st century reader, it's dull because, you know, it's, it's written in a very different time for a very different audience. Um, you know, it's a mass consumer, primarily children, children, children yeah. audience, although some adults read them too, especially during the war. Um, but like I said, what I really enjoyed as a Hawkman fan, especially of that that last old DC Universe series, yeah. was how well they incorporated all of this. And I always love when the history is respected like that. Well, and that's what irritated me is that Hawkman series was so good, and they they cleaned up Hawkman and Hawk Girl really, yeah. even though her part of that series floundered. That then they went to Brightest Day and totally had to fix them again, which made no sense to me because they were already fixed. It was already on a strong path yeah. and and a direction to go in. Shall we move on to the off-fly, gentlemen? All right. Let's let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's just mention in parting that uh, sure. Flash Comics number one was also the first appearance of Jay Garrick, the original uh, Golden yes. Age Flash. Johnny Thunder. Uh-huh. And uh, Cliff Cornwall and The Whip. <laughs> so, yes. It's a lot, of, a lot of things in one issue. Oh, yep. That's, that's what you got out of a Golden yeah. Age comic in those heady days. And all, for, all in color for a dime. 
All right, now we're moving on from the 1940s, the very early 1940s, to the very late 1950s. Uh, another winged adventurer uh, called the Fly. Uh, okay, so I'm looking here at uh, a trade that was put out by Archie under the name of Red Circle Productions because uh, uh, the Fly was an, an Archie Comics character. Um, under well, the, the company would have been known as MLJ Productions in those days, I guess. Um, oh, no, it says Archie Adventure Series right there on the front cover. So, so yes, an Archie character. Um, this trade that I have here for, from Red Circle slash Archie uh, includes a foreword by Joe Simon, who was one of the two creators of The Fly, um, along with uh, Jack Kirby and uh, with uh, also some input from uh, C.C. Beck, the creator of uh, Captain Marvel, the Billy Batson version of Captain Marvel. Um, so as an introduction here, I think I'm going to uh, read uh, some, uh, a couple of paragraphs from uh, Joe Simon's intro. Okay. The day after my phone conversation with Jack Kirby, his wife Roz drove him to my studio where we went over the material I had been collecting for the new superhero. This included scripts, notes, and eight pages of penciled art by C.C. Charlie Beck, chief artist for Captain Marvel. Although Charlie was considered one of a handful of greats by his peers, the art didn't work for me. The character looked too much like Captain Marvel. I was a fan of the slashing, smashing, flex-and-stretch extreme action art that had been so powerful in the Simon and Kirby days of Captain America. Remember, this is Joe Simon talking here, so he's describing the work that he and Kirby did together. I had begun work on the Spider-Man project in 1954. So uh, that this is so that was originally that's interesting. what uh, Simon had in mind to call this character, hmm. spider themed rather than fly themed. So he had begun work on that project in 1954. Sales of superhero comics were soft in the 50s, so the concept remained in limbo until the late 50s when rumors of new prosperity sounded out from publishers' offices. One of these publishers was Archie Comics, who were enjoying great success with their popular teenage humor comics, but took note of the superhero resurgence spreading throughout the industry. I pulled all the material off the shelves to see what I had. The logo, which I had lettered on a giant-sized board, was Spider-Man. No hyphen. Uh, after thinking it over and discussing it with my script man, Jack Olick, we decided there were too many man titles around. I changed it to The Silver Spider. There was no scientific explanation or polling. I handed the Silver Spider pages and the Spider-Man logo to Kirby, and he went back home to turn it into Kirby art. Kirby penciled his version of the C.C. Beck pages, already completed. I inked them and had them lettered by the world's greatest letterer, Howard Ferguson. So did we do The Silver Spider? Not exactly. We renamed the character The Fly. So there you are. And later on, when uh, Stan Lee originally went to Jack Kirby to uh, brainstorm about a spider-themed character, well, uh, the silver spider was what Kirby came back with. And the, he even had a, a magic ring that uh, turned the uh, well, teenaged alter ego of the silver spider into the silver spider, which was, as, as we'll see, an important element of the fly. Yeah. And uh, um, that, that is not the version of Spider-Man or Silver Spider that uh, Marvel ultimately went with. I no, think not it's, at all. I think it's interesting in this – because as Murd mentioned, this introduction is written almost as like an interview between Simon and uh, Roz Kirby, Jack Kirby, and then uh, they have a, a comment by Eisner – Ditko, I t these are taken from different interviews. And then the bottom, they have one from Stan Lee, and it, it does not paint Stan Lee in a positive light because uh, it says, you know, Eisner asks Kirby, you mean Spider-Man was cooked up between you and Joe Simon? You brought it to Stan? Kirby says, that's right. It was the last thing Joe and I had discussed. We had a strip called The Silver Spider. Joe had already moved on. So the idea was already there when I talked to Stan. Then Ditko says, Stan said Spider-Man would be a teenager with a magic ring which would transform into an adult hero, Spider-Man. 
I said I'm selling like the fly, which Joe Sub had done for Archie Publications. Stanley, when asked to comment how he created Spider-Man, I was sitting around watching a fly on the wall. Stanley, 2003, when asked to collaborate on the fly on the wall comment. Did I say that? Huh. Huh. <laughs> wow. Uh, Stan and his memory. There's always been controversy. We've talked about this before in our Spider-Man spotlights and many others for that matter about you know creator credit and rights and so forth. And I've read before about how you know this – Silver Spider concept was, you know, Kirby said that that's what Stan originally was going to do. Stan says something different. Who knows? Yeah. All we do know is whatever. What Spider Man, of course, is completely different from. Oh yeah. What you read what here you on the fly. Here. So very much a different concept. Yeah. So Simon is maybe overselling a little bit. Uh, Possibly. Yeah. His role and uh, well, his role as victim, perhaps, yeah. in, the, in the creation of Spider Man. But anyway, the, the, the connection does exist. Make of it what you will. Make whatever moral evaluations you wish. <laughs> it's there. All right. Now, getting down to the character hit itself, the fly. All right. Now, uh, this trade is fairly comprehensive. It reprints uh, not only uh, well the first uh, four issues of the fly's ongoing series, The Adventures of the Fly, but also a couple of little uh, two-page teasers, like little uh, trailers or little, little preview stories that appeared in another Archie com uh, publication, uh, The Double Life of Private Strong, which uh, was uh, an ongoing uh, series for the uh, a version of the shield. It's not the original Golden Age shield, who is much lauded as the first patriotic superhero to appear in comics, but it's a, a 1950s uh, revival, you might say. Uh, so, uh, The Double Life of Private Strong, number one, cover dated June of 1959. Just a quick little two-pager. Uh, a couple of uh, uh, hoods, gangsters, are uh, hiding out on a rooftop in the rain, and uh, they're being plagued by a little cloud of flies when they see a silhouette of an an eerie uh, human figure with uh, what looks like fly wings sprouting from its back. And suddenly, a man in a green and yellow costume is standing there, looming behind them with his arms folded. Uh, he uh, springs into action, punches the hoods in the face, and then drops them off at the local uh, police station. And uh, all the, the only clue as to this person's identity is uh, a pair of tiny pellets uh, attached to their clothing. Apparently, they're little stingers that... Uh, Delivered a sort of, uh, I don't know, anesthetic or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, stun, stun uh, of some kind. Well, a chemical that puts a person to sleep. Oh, um, sedative. That 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 works. Yeah. yeah. All right. So anyway, and uh, then uh, in the background, through a window in the police station, you can see this uh, green and yellow clad figure vaulting away over the rooftops. Now, the wings on the – you know, the theme of this episode is winged wonders. Uh, we might as well comment on the evolution of the wings in this uh, first little two-pager with, with art by the legendary Kirby himself. Uh, the wings on the fly look more like a, an aviator's collar, really. They're, they're not even really sprouting out of his back so much as uh, between uh, his uh, head and his shoulders. Yeah. It's like a little uh, neck ruff something. Um, so – and then the second two-pager appeared in the very next issue of The Double Life of Private Strong, number two, cover dated August of 59. Um, the, this time, Joe Simon not only uh, did the script, but he provided the, the artwork himself. So uh, here we, we get a two-page sample of what uh, the fly would look like if it were a 100% Joe Simon project. All right. All right. So the title of the story is uh, The Boy Sentinels. 
Assignment, Find Tommy Troy. And it's about a gang of uh, – it's a kid gang, which is a classic Kirby concept. Oh, yes. So oh, funny sure. that uh, Kirby's not really involved in this particular two-pager. Uh, but it's a group of uh, orphans who are wondering uh, what has become of their good little friend Tommy Troy, who has uh, vanished from their orphanage and hasn't been seen since uh, he caught uh, the orphanage administrator, Mr. Creature, C-R-E-A-C-H-E-R. <laughs> this is a creepy name for an orphanage uh... – <laughs> Uh, ma- manager. Totally. Yeah. Dickens himself could hardly have done better than that. <laughs> uh, so there, so uh, Tommy Troy caught Mr. Creature misusing the orphanage money. So these uh, this bunch of orphans are uh, wondering what's happened to their friend, and they decide they're going to try and track down this new mystery man that the papers have been talking about, the fly, and see if he can find Tommy Troy for them. Um, so um, the orphans trail the fly to a seedy-looking upstairs room, and uh, we discovered that the reason the fly was in there was that he was about to uh, undo some mobsters. One of those mobsters finds the orphans, pulls a gun on them, but then, pow, a yellow-gloved uh, fist slams into his face. The orphans are face-to-face with the fly, the very person they were looking for. They make a tearful plea to him to help them find their friend. And smilingly, the fly just says to them, Fellows, I'll do anything you ask, but I, I can't bring Tommy Troy to you. And then down at the bottom... Uh, the, the the big teaser. Do you know why the great fly cannot answer the desperate plea of the boy sentinels? Because when orphan Tommy Troy rubs his magic ring, he becomes the fearless champion of justice, the fly. Never before a hero who captures your imagination so completely. See how it all began in this amazing new magazine. I want to point out, by the way, that this two-parter is a reminder of Joe Simon was no slouch as an artist himself. I mean... The, he and Kirby work so closely together that sometimes, you know, Simon would ink Kirby. Uh, Simon is widely it's, it's widely uh, known that Simon really designed the first image of Captain America. There's, there's, the, that art still exists, I believe. Um, I remember you guys did uh, going back in like 2010. You did a spotlight on Captain America, and, and Murd, you were on it, and you had a friend of Joe Simon's. I can't remember the man's name. I apologize. Who? Well, would work closely with him and, and gave a lot of great information about how he Kirby and he and Kirby worked. And I remember him talking about Joe's sense of layout. And this two pages is masterful layout. I mean, the way he has the newspapers using to tell part of the story in the top panel, and then the one paper acts as like a transition from the top panel to the fly on the wall in the second panel. There's a reason why these guys were masters. This is yeah. this is great layout here. Sorry, Martin. Oh, not at all. Interruptions are encouraged. <laughs> All right, and then from there we jump to the first full appearance of The Fly, which was in the first issue of his own magazine, Adventures of The Fly, number one, uh, in 1959, cover date August, same month as that last little two-pager I was talking about. Um, And so we're treated to the origin of The Fly. He's young Tommy Troy in the Westwood Orphanage in an unnamed American city. Uh, and just as that uh, last little two-pager, you know, the, as the boy Sentinels told us, uh, Tommy Troy one night uh, gets fed up with uh, how underfed he and all his uh, little orphan friends are. And so on behalf of his fr- – he's more worried about his friends than he is about himself. He goes to complain to the management, uh, Mr. Creature, and uh, he finds uh, Mr. Creature being uh, worked over by a bunch of mobsters led by a guy named Blaster McCoy who apparently runs a uh, house of gambling in which Mr. Creature has uh, lost several uh, – Im- uh, well, a lot of embezzled money from the orphanage. Uh, Tommy overhears uh, the exchange between Gangster and uh, Mr. Creature, and uh, Gangster is in favor of uh, rubbing him out right then and there, but Mr. Creature complains that there will be an investigation. It's better to get rid of him quietly, so they decide to basically uh, sell him to a creepy old couple 
the marches uh, – uh, the, uh, the writers can't seem to make up their minds over the first couple of stories what Mr. March's name is. Sometimes he's Ben. Sometimes he's Ezra. His wife is named Abigail. And they're uh, reputed to be witches or wizards or warlocks or some such. They live in a tumble-down old house uh, on a big, uh, steep, barren hill on the outskirts of town. Of course, when they drive up to it, it's a stark and stormy night. There's lightning in the background. Um, and uh, so they leave Tommy with these two uh, refugees from an uh, EC horror comic. They look like they should be the hosts. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Tommy is uh, forced to work there for these two uh, odd old birds um, who spend a lot of their time, uh, as Tommy puts it, puttering around in a room in the attic, which they keep locked. And Tommy uh, one day just can't resist the curiosity. Goes upstairs, finds all kinds of arcane. Finds it unlocked. Yes. What luck? He finds it unlocked. Yeah. Luckily. And he goes upstairs, uh, looks at all the arcane paraphernalia up there. Can't make heads or tails of it. Falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he finds that a spider has woven a web in a corner. But all the flies are able to escape from the web because of a strange glittering object at the base of the web. He picks it up and discovers that it's a ring, shaped somewhat like a fly. He puts it on. It uh, projects a beam of light on the wall, and out comes uh, his version of the wizard Shazam. I mean, uh, the, the astute yeah, reader will yeah. notice the similarities to Captain Marvel's origin here yeah. throughout. And after all, C.C. Beck, one of the creators of Captain Marvel, uh, was uh, the first person contacted by Joe Simon to help him out with his project. Uh, so uh, the, the Shazam figure here is a being named Turan, an emissary of the Fly People, uh, who um, used to be a, a dominant species on the planet Earth many, many long eons ago, but uh, who left... Left at the time of a great cataclysm, and um, the the, the few fly people who were left behind on Earth eventually devolved into common house flies. So there's your origin myth there. Kind of creepy. Yep. Uh, But uh, apparently they left this uh, fly ring behind. Uh, so in the hopes that uh, a member of the race that uh, rose up in the place of the fly people, namely humans, would come along who was virtuous and pure and hard and, and pure enough of heart. To be worthy of the fly people's wisdom. And so Turin has decided that Tommy Troy is this person and he's going to bequeath to him uh, powers that the fly people have to bestow. And those are, and I quote, the ability to walk up and down the sides of buildings, muscles of steel, a hundred times the strength of normal man, the secret of seeing in all directions and the cunning to escape every trap. And uh, those uh, those powers may vary as uh, superhero powers are wont to yeah. do as writers uh, write themselves into difficult spots or just get tired of writing the same power set over and over again. So yeah, we'll find that Tommy Troy's powers will uh, change a little bit over time. Um, but one uh, power that uh, is uh, significant in its absence, um, he can't fly. The fly can't at first. Uh, yeah, that, that list of powers mentions walking up and down walls, but uh, the, the, those wings – and right after Turin is done outlining these powers, he explains to Tommy all he needs to do is rub the ring and wish to become the fly, and uh, he becomes an adult, you know, again, Captain Marvel-like, uh, Avenger of Evil named the fly in his green and yellow costume with his big uh, sort of a shoulder-mounted pair of diaphanous fly wings, which uh, serve no apparent purpose because, as I've said, he can't fly yet. <laughs> the other Diap- – Diaphanous. Yeah, uh, transparent <laughs> and uh, – uh, yeah. So it, it's often used to describe insect wings. Okay. So. Uh, but so anyway, uh, in, the, in the, the other stories that follow in this issue uh, – and, and that's pretty much the end of the lead story because this, this first issue is divided into little chapters. Um, so at, at the end of this first story, he's just – he's got uh, his new body. He's got his magic ring uh, and he uh, immediately sets out to do what exactly? Um 
Uh, so the the second chapter, the fly strikes, is when the fly tries to figure himself out. He's wondering to himself, it's all so strange, these maddening vibrations in my ears, the voices of children, I can make them out. What am I? What can I do? There's only one way to find out and one place, the orphanage. So he immediately heads back to the orphanage, and the first uh, victims of the fly are Mr. Creature and uh, his uh, <laughs> underworld uh, <sighs> associates. Uh, so he makes quick work of them. That chapter lasts exactly two pages. Uh, makes short work of them. Goes back to uh, the March's attic uh, where to find Turin waiting for him and uh, tells him how to change back to Tommy Troy. Just say Tommy Troy and he turns back into Tommy Troy. And uh, then Turin takes his leave and uh, is not uh, – I don't think that's the last that uh, the fly sees of Turin, but it's the last he sees of him in this issue in, at least. Uh, then in the next story, the fly discovers his buzz gun, which is in a big yellow holster at his side when he first becomes the fly. So in uh, this next story, he goes up against uh, a bunch of other criminals, just uh, robbers who are in a car chase with the police. Um, in this story, he's introduced to his love interest, uh, the uh, pigtailed girl next door, Dolly Lake, uh, and he gets to use his buzz gun for the first time. And it's uh, – it doesn't seem to be – it doesn't do much of anything except pr produce a buzzing sound. <laughs> and it's uh, – the one panel where he actually fires it, he's just leaping on top of the criminals and the buzz gun is – it's just a noisemaker. <laughs> I'm sure it uh, acquires other uses later on but uh, not uh, at this point. Uh, and then the spider goes up uh, – the fly goes up against his uh, first major villain. Uh, on the, the, the cover of this first issue, uh, it, it boasts of a, a new storytelling technique. Uh, first time in comics, action on the wide-angle scream. <laughs> it's pure early Kirby <laughs> in terms of the style we're accustomed to. Oh, yeah. yes. It's, it's a great-looking page. It's awesome. But yeah. as it turns out, the wide-angle scream is – that means that one page, the first page of this story uh, – uh, in which the fly goes up against his first villain, the spider, or spider spry, it's uh, horizontal. One page. And it, and it's a it's a very well-designed... This one page could have easily been a Sunday strip. Yeah, the way he uses both foreground and background to yeah. create uh, the perception of depth in, in the panel. I mean, this is... This is the type of techniques we're going to see Kirby take to the next level when he does the Marvel work in the in the 1960s. Mm. See what you mean about the, the newspaper. Yeah, it, that's the first thing I thought of flipping to that page. Yep, so this is just the fly going up against, uh, well, a, uh, wow, a grotesque-looking... Uh, uh, he's just a human being who's uh, particularly nimble and good at tying Reminds knots. Reminds you of the toad a little bit. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He does. He's also yeah. a, a Kirby design, yes. right? And so, but uh, this uh, is 1959, so that's this is you know, a good four or five years before the Toad came along, and he's wearing a red and green costume. That's apparently his everyday attire. He's just <laughs> kind of sitting around in his. Uh, yeah, he's a, a fisherman's net maker in his day job, but he also oh, has, <laughs> runs criminal operations on the side. Uh, so the fly uh, goes up against him down at the waterfront, and uh, you know, the title of the story is "Come into my parlor," said the spider to the fly. You know, it, it practically writes itself. Sure. Um, and we learn the flies uh, got a major weakness, and that is uh, whenever a, a bright light flashes in his eyes, he loses his equilibrium and falls over. And it's here that we first we see fairly concrete proof that the fly cannot fly, because uh, a bright light blinds him while he's uh, crawling around on a wall, and he falls into the water below. And he thinks to himself, "The light upset my equilibrium. I'll have to remember those weaknesses if I live that long." <laughs> 
And then he encounters the spider, has a quick battle with him, and uh, that's the end of that. And the final story in the issue, entitled Magic Eye, is just a quick three pa- or four-page dust-up between the fly and a runaway android. And that's your uh, first issue, Adventures of the Fly number one. Interesting. I ne- I really probably did not know that that character existed until you mentioned him. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so he's he's been revived a bunch of times. He was um, part of the Impact uh, line that uh, DC did in the okay. very early 90s. Um the the way you, when you read the introduction and we talked about what was going on in the first issue, really an interesting mashup of Captain Marvel, Spider-Man, Spider-Vision, I mean Fly-Vision, which was Spider-Sense type. Just uh, you can really see where all these creators really had their influence in this character as Joe Simon was asking for input. I think that's a good point, Shane, because we have to remember how small the comic book industry was. All these people knew each other, either personally or or at least as an acquaintance or by reputation. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you hear about the origin of the Spider-Man, we know, and, and I've read about the silver spider and the fly and how that may or may not have had an impact on the origin of the, you know, the Marvel age Spider-Man. So again, I, I love these timepieces. The, the storytelling doesn't do much for me when I read it as, as a 21st century reader, I found it, you know, I find it dull, but the Kirby art, I was eating this up because you really see because this is 1959, 1960, you know, Kirby's style – because when you look at different eras of Kirby, like there's an evolution. And I love them all, but in the way he draws Captain America mm-hmm. in the 40s is different to some degree from what you see here in The Fly. And then when you, when you look at – but you can see the, the, the connections between the two. And then you can see very much here like that, that sort of cinescope page you just looked at. Mm-hmm. The wide-angle screen. Yeah. And, then, and then also um, – Oh, let me find it here. There's a well, and and that page in particular, given that the first two pages were kind of preview teaser pages, that's what I sort of thought that one was until I realized that was the first page and of the on, book. On, on page eleven of the, 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 I think we all have the same red circle trade, where the the fly is holding four crooks with one arm, and they're all mm-hmm. kind of hanging on each other. And the way Kirby has used perspective in that page. You know, it's it's that Kirby effect where the, the characters are almost popping out of the panel on you. Yeah. And I also, as, as someone who loves Kirby, I'm just loving just seeing this work here because you, you again you so see the connections. And there's pages where you know characters are almost almost falling out of the panels a little bit, and it's just it's that kind of dynamic rendering of a page that no artist really did the way he did. And it, again, you see that right here. Again, you have examples of. Where the Marvel style that Kirby pioneered is going to come from, because like here on page uh, page twenty nine, he's 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 on top of the spider, holding him down. You see the spider's elbow kind of hanging off into mm-hmm. the next panel. Yep, when you said characters yeah. falling out of panels, yeah, yeah. that's very Kirby. I, I jumped straight so, to that. This is this is again, this isn't you know Kirby like drawing in nineteen sixty six, or it's not Kirby doing the New Gods in the seventies, but boy, can you can you really appreciate? Uh, the evolution of his style. I mean, for this, for that alone, I think any any Kirby fan who haven't looked at these fly stories, you should. When well, and you said this was what nineteen fifty nine fifty nine. Yeah. So the first one we read, the Flash comics from nineteen forty. You can really tell in twenty years just how far along the storytelling, the art, the layouts for the pages, how far they had come. Absolutely, and the fact that a single character could carry an entire yeah issue of a comic. Yeah. What do you think, Mert? 
I, I actually kind of enjoyed this. It's a, you know, it's a you know, very early Silver Age uh, novelty, uh, and uh, I, I guess I'm. I can't comment as much about the dynamism of curvy artwork mm-hmm. as you can, Chris, because I'm just. I, I don't feel qualified to comment on art because I'm really more of a story guy, or a, or a, a writer. Of, yeah, uh, I don't mean to. No, I understand imply that uh, yeah. artists uh, don't contribute to the telling of stories, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I'm more. Uh, attuned to the writing end of things, uh, and I'm not the big, uh, I'm not the Kirby fan that some other people seem to be. I, I, I like his work. I appreciate the energy that goes into it, the, the immense creativity. You know, just uh, playing with different narrative, uh, well, uh, well, different styles of uh, visual presentation, like the wide-angle scream here, which is, uh, I mean, it, it, it's a great page, but I can't help but feel rooked a little bit that the the entire story wasn't told in that fashion. Yep. Yep. Uh, but it's just kind of neat seeing uh, how Simon does his part and uh, uh, slowly over the course of these several mini-stories in the first issue uh, builds up the – I mean there is some cumulative storytelling going on. There is in the first few chapters of this issue, the fly uh, slowly comes to grips with uh, who he is and what he can do You know, as opposed to you – know, it's, it's good that you bring up uh, – uh, the Flash Comics number one Hawkman story, Shane, as a compare and contrast, uh, as opposed to just uh, throwing on a hawk suit he happened to have lying around yeah, and suddenly yeah. jump into the sky, <laughs> or, knowing or, exactly he, he just happened to have a dynamo detector lying around in his lab that let him found, find uh, Dr. Haster. And and just having an more or less out-of-body experience, and, oh, I'm just going to go for a walk, and boom, ran into the one person that you kind of need to to progress the story that the evil bad guy kidnaps and... It's all neat, neat and tidy and done in 12 pages. Mm-hmm. It's just well, – well, of course, that's – part of that is the format. Sure, too. absolutely. The fact that uh, the Joe Simon has a whole issue to play with whereas yeah. uh, Gardner Fox had 12 pages. But still, it's, it's – it's, it, you know, the, 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 the more realistic pacing, the fact that uh, the fly has to stand around wondering a little bit at least, you know, well, what's – OK, I've turned into this new being. Uh, what, what kind of powers do I really have? Uh, what, what do these weapons do? You know, just a few years ago, uh, the, a character like this wouldn't waste any time whatsoever wondering about... Uh, yeah, he would just do it. Yeah. Exactly, just jump right into uh, punching the bad guy in the face. And we certainly... The Flash, the, the fly, I mean, certainly does uh, get around to doing that fairly quickly. But at mm-hmm. least, you know, there's something to uh, anchor this a little bit more in, uh, in plausibility by having the fly actually take a moment to think, you know, okay... Uh, th- this is my new status quo. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with this. And just, he's, he's still finding his feet as he uh, as he fights Spider Spry, and a, a bright flash of light plunges him into the water. Yeah, so it's yeah. So yeah, you you can indeed see the evolution of uh, Silver Age storytelling here. And uh, now n- another question, a little bit off topic, but do people compare, say, Kirby's innovations with Will Eisner's innovations? Because both of them give interesting perspectives on how they drew and laid out comic books. Is that something that's readily happened, or are they just kind of standalone on I, their I, own? I don't – you know, I, I can't answer that with any kind of authority. I mean certainly Eisner and Kirby help us two of the greatest icons in terms of the creativity of, of the comic book media. I mean Eisner – see, the thing about Eisner, and I'm not an expert on Eisner, just the basics, but he, he – I mean he stands on his own in the sense that – he had the vision to uh, claim control of his own creation, the spirit. He he was in his own – besides that charlatan Bob Kane, and Bob Kane is – to me is a talentless bum compared to Will Eisner. But both those men had the wherewithal, the cunning, however you want to put it, uh, 
the insight to work to have greater control over their characters, so the spirit which he owned, mm-hmm. and Kane at least had that whole whatever deal he had with DC, which yeah. unfortunately seems to still exist, even though it's it's a abomination. Um, so. I think in terms of a creative contribution, both Kirby and – I mean people talk about the most influential artists in comic books. Usually they say Will Eisner and Jack Kirby, okay. and that's the two names you tend to hear the most, and you should because – Sure. I mean what Eisner did with the spirit – I mean when you read a spirit comic uh, from the 19 – you know, the 40s or what have you, they're really sophisticated. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like, like – like the, these fly stories were fun, and I, I, I you know, I, I appreciate them for the time they were done. I really appreciate the Kirby artwork more than anything. When you read a spirit story, they're really compelling now. I mean, Eisner was such a visionary, and he was so ahead of his time. In, in not just in, he, and people most remember him for like his amazing layouts and the way he incorporate the title of an mm-hmm. issue into the story. Sure. And, um, but his subject matter was very sophisticated. There, there's a reason why when uh, Darwin Cook did his magnificent retelling oh, of the Spirit ca- absolutely comic, absolutely fantastic. Those issues are phenomenal. They are phenomenal. Yes, they are. But he is really channeling the spirit of Eisner and the way he approached his character. Um, so, and Kirby. I mean, Kirby. God, I could we could spend hours on Kirby, but both these men, well, definitely and, two of the two of the icons. And I asked that for things you both said about how the the wide angle panels and the characters falling out of panel into the next panel just things that i don't know that i realized kirby did for this kind of book well even in the captain america comic of the golden age when you look at those books um i want to say they have some of the first if not the first splash pages or two-page spreads uh i mean even in the golden age cap even there you know the the fight scenes i mean they're lunging at you no one drew the way he drew. I mean, especially in that time period. And it's when, when Kirby becomes the king, right, when he's the, the Marvel artist, Lee would have the other artists, I want you to draw like Kirby. Not imitate him, but yeah. the energy. You know, he, he would have Kirby do layouts for a lot of the early issues and then have other artists work over them to start to understand the dynamics of his style and, and how to incorporate that just that pulsating energy that the Marvel Comics had. And you see that you see it here in the fly. Sure. Absolutely. Um I mean, I revere Kirby's work, as as we all know, and, and it's just another example of what what an innovator he was. But yeah, I mean, to to kind of come circle back to your question, I, I think it's a, I think it's a fair statement that many people who are more authoritative in their knowledge than than, than I am would, would say Eisner and Kirby are two of the most important innovative creators in the history of the comic book medium. So. Cool. And Simon, as I said, no slouch. I oh mean, Joe gosh, Simon, no. Joe Simon edited, Joe Simon drew, Joe Simon inked, Joe Simon published. I mean, you know, very, he only died just. I mean, he's in his nineties, a few years ago. I mean, he, he, you can't undersell his his contribution yeah. either. And they created romance comics for God's sake, mm-hmm. you know, entire so, genre. Yeah, the Falcon, Falcon. All the Falcon. right. This was fun for me because I hadn't read this story in years. I'd never read that story, um, and I, I've always loved the Falcon. Um, so we're looking at Captain America 117. So we're you know we're well into Cap's uh, Silver Age title. Actually, this is a 15 cent cover, so we're approaching the Bronze Age. This is the very end of the 1960s, and the creative team is Stan Lee, who's still scripting a lot of the Marvel titles at this point. Gene the Dean Colon. Some people might forget that that Colon did do a run on Captain America in this period, inked by the. 
the invaluable, the essential Joe Sinnott. And letters by the always reliable Sam Rosen. Uh, this story pick, – we, we picked this up in the middle of a story. Um, Cap uh, was in battle with his arch enemy, the Red Skull, and the Avengers were involved. And ultimately there's a mind switch, and Johann Schmidt, the Red Skull, ends up in uh, Steve Rogers' body, and Steve ends up in the body of the Red Skull. Now at this point, the Skull has possession of the Cosmic Cube, which is which he's wrested from, I believe, from Advanced Idea Mechanics. And he's using, of course, to manipulate reality. Uh, again, in the Marvel movie universe, they're developing. I mean, they call it the Tesseract, but you know, it's going to obviously it's going to play a key role as we move towards the inevitable Infinity Gauntlet. Um, so, Cap is sent the Red Skull to amuse himself to pause this Cap using the Cosmic Cube's energies onto this remote tropical island, where this murderous band of fascist thugs known as the Exiles, who had already appeared in Captain America. They are minions of the skull, and they've kind of been abandoned on this island as well. And there's also a, like a small indigenous population there. And they feel the skull has betrayed them, and, and that's why the skull sends his body there with Steve Rogers' mind because he knows the exiles will try to kill, it, kill him. And uh, Steve, as the Red Skull, realizes, oh, I'm only wearing a mask. We have to remember the Red Skull. Yeah, I didn't realize see, that. The Red Skull today, that's his actual head. Yeah. But – Yep, he it, originally it was, a, it was a mask that the Hitler gave him, hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. So to create his own symbol, yeah. Actually, Captain America was created as a response to Hitler's attempt to create like a, a living symbol of the yeah. fascist of the Nazi hmm. ideology, and so Captain America was the antibody to the germ that was the skull. So the exiles uh, and each, each exile has their own ability. Like one is a sharpshooter, one has like this weapon laden wheelchair and so if one has a whip and one so has forth. a scarf yes yeah, scarf that's what it is wait actually i have to i have to read the line here it because he, he thinks he's talking to the skull it was you who taught me how to make a lethal weapon of my scarf so now it was your turn to feel its deadly sting wow so skull knows how to accessorize <laughs> and because the red skull is like captain america his fighting skill has no equal he's able to outfight the exiles but even so he's, he's going to be overwhelmed and then an actual falcon appears and sort of drives the exiles away by clawing at them. Of course, this we know is going to be Red Wing, and that allows uh, the cap slash skull to get away. And I found this very entertaining. I have to read from this. I should have thought of this long ago because he realized he's wearing a mask. Nobody would ever recognize the skull without his mask. And yet what if the exiles have seen his face? I can't afford to chance it, but – if I can use this clay properly, I won't have to. It'll furnish a perfect base for a makeshift disguise. So he takes clay, and he, ma he makes an incredibly lifelike face. <laughs> face for himself. That doesn't dry out. No, and then we, f we switch back to Manhattan where the skull is arrogantly parading around through the streets as Captain America. And he's thinking of different ways to ruin Captain America's reputation by being disdainful and brusque towards his, his many fans. So he's, he's very pompous and arrogant. There's a great colon splash page of Cap the Skull reclining on a chair and like you know being haughty with the media. And you know, some people are thinking, you know, he's not acting like Captain America normally does. And um, we then meet Colin's art, by the way, in this is so because the essential yeah. is black and white. Right. It's so beautiful. Oh yes. my god! I am not normally in favor of black and white reprints. Colin, no, I'm not yes, either. But that that looked great. Colin's artwork cries out for it. Yeah. yeah. 
And we, we, we see our first uh, image of Sam Wilson. He's kind of like in a Robinson Crusoe type torn pants, but he has the gauntlet and Red Wing. And I got to tell you, I, I've forgotten the first image he, he draws of Sam Wilson. The artwork is, is stunning. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, it, it's, it's beautifully done. And of course, you know, Sinnott's one of the greatest inkers ever in the history of comics, so that doesn't hurt either. And we get, you know, Falcon and, and Cap hit it off pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, I mean, he doesn't know that he's talking to Captain America, he's just some guy uh, with a clay mask. Um, we find out that since he was a kid, uh, he'd always felt this kinship with Falcons. And he answered this this is, you know, kind of hokey Silver Age. He answers this ad to be a falconer, and he ends up on this remote island, where he, but he realizes the exiles have put the ad in and that they're fascists. And now he's trying to lead the villagers in an uprising to drive them away from the island. And we don't get much reference – this comes later to the fact that the Falcon was actually a petty criminal when he lived in Harlem. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, they don't really go into that. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a whole crazy thing from yeah. much later on. Yeah, when, when they refer to the fact that he used to be called Snap Wilson. Hmm. Um, that comes later. Here, he does, make a, he does make an oblique reference to when he used to fight street gangs. Um, but he's clearly a benevolent character, and you know, Steve is telling him, "Look, you know, you should you should take take on like a symbol, a guise to to rat to inspire and rally the villagers." And he encourages him, and they have like a crash training session. And, and the colon artwork is beautiful, where you know Steve in, in Johann Schmidt's body is teaching the Falcon how to fight. Essentially, wait, is that in the next issue? Am I getting ahead of myself? I don't remember the training session. No, 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 no. The training it's session. Next, I apologize. I yeah, read but, ahead. I apologize. Uh, Cap does, he designs the costume yes, for I him first. <laughs> um, the, the last thing we see is the Falcon in his first costume. And they, it's a great uh, uh, sp half splash page where Colin shows, like, I guess one of the villagers making the costume, like on a loom of some kind. Yeah. And the different parts. I love how the, how the, how the villager has like a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And uh, they roll their own. Yes, and uh, of course, and it's the Falcon. Many people don't realize the Falcon. His original costume was green. Oh, I and didn't know that oh yeah, because you can't tell from this, but no. it was green, and very different from the, the more famous one we're all familiar with from the comics. Uh, and he didn't have wings. It was just it was just a costume with a mask and you know the gauntlet for for Red Wing to perch on, and uh, that's the end of the story. And then you, you, know, you can look forward to the next issue where Cap and the Falcon will actually try to take on the exiles, and you follow Johann Schmidt as Cap trying to destroy Cap's reputation. Um, yeah, boy, it was a hoot to read this again. I hadn't read it in a long time. I'm such a huge fan of, you know, especially to get into the late Marvel Silver Age, early Bronze Age, where they've really started to build the universe. It's unfolding. And uh, it's a fun story. I mean, Stan Lee still had the chops at this point. But for me, what's even more important, the colon artwork is so breathtaking in this. And just the renderings of Sam Wilson are especially spectacular. And you have to understand also the importance of the fact that this is an early African-American yeah. superhero. You'd had the Black Panther before this, that he came out in 1966. This is 69. But, you know, we, we shouldn't undersell the symbolism of, you know, Captain America, the the paragon of you know what's supposed to be the american dream his new partner is a black man in 1969 yeah so that is a bit of a big deal right there and 
obviously you don't get much of the Falcon's character yet. But for me, the Falcon has always been a character that has been very well realized, uh, very sophisticated, and often very well used throughout Marvel history. And it makes perfect sense to me that he is now Captain America mm-hmm. in the present day because he's always been portrayed as, as just a fundamentally decent person. Maybe because a social worker in a civilian guise in subsequent issues, we get into the early seventies, um, and, and all the like, and then, and then eventually the book will become Captain America and the Falcon. Sure, um, you know, so, sometime after this, but a, a very important character uh, in Marvel history, and a character who I think has a rich history of his own, rich enough that he can, I think, he can easily carve out his own niche as, as, as we all know, will be a temporary Captain America. Yeah. So, what do you guys think? Well, uh, this is the first time that uh, either Shane or I had yeah. uh, had, had read this story. Ah. Um, I, having read uh, the Falcon's Ohatmu entry, I knew a couple of the, uh, <laughs> the broad strokes of his origin. I, I had known that uh, they had met up on the Island of the Exiles where uh, Cap had been marooned. Um, I had not known that uh, Captain America was stuck in the Red Skull's body and vice versa at the time. And I'd known that the, the, Cosmi- and the Cosmic Cube ha- plays a larger role – in uh, the, uh, the the meeting of Captain America and the Falcon than uh, we are meant to know at this time. Indeed, a larger role than uh, Stan Lee had in mind, I get the feeling. <laughs> but uh, there is something of a hole in the story when you think about it. I mean, the, the exiles are supposed to be marooned on this island. And By yet, the skull, yeah. Somehow they're able to put out a want ad for a... <laughs> A guy with a falcon to come and uh, help them train or give them some sport or something. And they put on a passing merchant ship. Yes, yeah. and uh, he came in on the first steamer that he could. So why couldn't that steamer just take the exiles off the island with it when it left? Ah, trifles. Yeah. Come on, so, Gilligan's Island. Apparently uh, later writers thought there was uh, something of a hole there too because of, you know, th- this again is uh, uh, external to our current discussion of Captain 117. But later we learned that the Red Skull is responsible for Sam Wilson being on that island. That's right. That's right. He's yeah. the one who uh, submerged the Snap Wilson persona, brought Sam Wilson back to his right, earlier, Mark. more idealistic, right. idealistic days because he was the son of a crusading preacher in yes. Harlem. And he later became a pimp. Right. Oh, get out. <laughs> he became oh, yeah. badly oh, dis- I think it was after his sister was killed. Yeah, he was a, he was a street, street, street hood. Yeah, so no. Or wait, or was it after his father was killed? You know, he had a sister too. But anyway, uh, he became, as you say, a pimp, Snap a hustler, Wilson. Snap yeah. Wilson. But uh, the skull somehow uh, learned of his existence, thought that uh, the younger, more idealistic Sam Wilson would mm. be uh, appealing to Captain America. So he brought uh, Sam to this island. Well, turned Snap back into Sam, bonded him with this Falcon, because even in this first in, in uh, number one seventeen. Uh, Sam is already remarking they on how uh, connection, yeah. how incredible it is that uh, he and this Falcon have such a – and then eventually we learn that they have a, a, a telepathic link that uh, the Skull himself forged for them with the, with the Cosmic Cube. And they set him up here. The, the Skull set this whole thing up, the Sam and Red Wing and so forth, uh, to uh, make uh, a more you know, devilish trap for Captain America, thinking that maybe a meeting up with this uh, like-minded individual would inspire some more false hope in Captain America that uh, the Skull could then dash, take away from him. Mm-hmm. But apparently he never got around to uh, fully realizing that part of his plan. And so instead, Cap ends up with a new partner. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely agree with what you said about the, the Gene Colan art, uh, Chris. As I've already said, it's there are very few artists who will uh, make me uh, not only... Uh, not mind, but uh, relish the lack of uh, color in a black and white reprint oh, yeah. of an original color yeah, comic. I agree with that. Uh, and uh, just uh, the, the wrinkle with uh, the, the mind swap between Cap and the Skull was an interesting uh, uh, curveball to throw us. Um, the fact that 
Uh, well, what was I just going to say? Just flew out of, oh, yeah, the, the, the bit with uh, disguising himself with clay. <laughs> Seems kind of silly. When you think about it, uh, I, I can see how disguise craft would be useful to a, a soldier behind enemy lines. Sure. And uh, it's one of the. But it's many... a hell of a lifelike uh, clay mask. <laughs> yes, I just. I'm almost sorry that we don't have color because I'm curious what color that clay was. Oh, it was human flesh. I hope he didn't. End up... <laughs> if he ended up. Somehow I'm picturing him looking like a minstrel show performer, and that's. <laughs> not. Not what you want no. to have happen in the first appearance of Captain America's new African-American sidekick. Right, right. Or partner, excuse me. Not sidekick, partner. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that was a little weird, but it's, it's, it's a new skill that uh, we know Captain America possesses, thanks to this story. Um, and so just seeing Captain, in a, even if he is in the Red Skull's body, in, in an exotic island setting, fighting a bunch of, uh, you know, ex-Nazis and other undesirables, it's... It's just, and, and as you said, Chris, that he said he is such a consummate fighter, and then the way he turns the tables on Baldini, the wielder oh, of yeah. the scarf, uh, it's it, even though he's not in his own body, he's still able to remember what he did to, to bring Baldini down the last time. And they what fought. I liked about that sequence, and, and it was very really well done by Leon Colin and, and Sinnott, is emphasizing what a master hand-to-hand combatant Captain America is, and how he just. He can incorporate all these different styles yeah. and make them work. And in the next issue, because I, I jumped ahead of myself, when he's training the Falcon, and it's a beautiful full page by Colin, he takes through all these different fighting techniques. It's great stuff. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, like you both had said, the, the artwork's gorgeous, and, and I totally agree with Mert. I am not one to like many black and white comics, especially ones that first appear in color. Uh, but yeah, Gene Colan's artwork works in black and white in so many ways. It's it's just gorgeous. Um, not what I expected of a first appearance of Falcon. Very interesting. Stuck on a Gilligan's Island where they can do all kinds of stuff except get off the island. Um, I had to ask for a point of reference about the Red Skull and Captain America, which is fine. Um, I I enjoy that they get along so well, knowing that they have history and they're so close and so. Uh, on par with each other, partners, friends, brothers, um, that they that they just had that instant connection right away. Even given the circumstances of the, just this guy that Sam doesn't know and Captain America, Steve hears about the plight that Sam's kind of involved with trying to rally the people to take back their island and, and well, well, all right, let's go. Why not? And let's do it. Make it happen. Well, I think that the dialogue there – Established right from the get-go that these men have a connection mm-hmm. and that they have – there's a bond forming. And I maybe think of the Winter Soldier film. Absolutely. Which, which is my personal favorite of all the Marvel films thus far because um, the, the writing and the acting was so good. They established right away that the men had a chemistry. Yep. And you need to have that for Captain the Falcon because he's not a sidekick. And there, there's a, there's such a bond there, and there's such a mutual respect. Um, I mean, even and, just the little banter and Winter Soldier going back yeah. and forth as they run—that's yeah. that's perfect. And and again, we kind of we may not think of it as much now because it's 2014, but to have like the living symbol of the United States treat a African American as an equal and as a partner that he puts his life in that man's hands, starting in 1969 to 1970, that's a big deal. Um, and also because we have to remember that St- – and I, I, don't know, I wonder if they're going to touch upon this in the films actually. Steve Rogers comes from a time when the United States was a thoroughly racist nation mm-hmm. in terms of its institutions. I mean not necessarily from individual to individual but from the general 
perspective of society and, and the way society interacted or didn't interact when it came to the races. And you know, the fact that I mean, it's Steve Rogers. The fact that he embraces this man, not he doesn't care about his skin color because he comes from a time where that was a that was an issue, far m- more in many ways than it might be today. Um, so there's there's a, so much resonance there, both in the story and and in the film. Uh, yeah. too, and I really hope in in I really hope they call the next movie Captain America and the Falcon, um, yeah. because he they are equals. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm I'm looking forward to see how they use. Excuse me, uh, Sam Wilson as Captain America. He, they just started having him in the Axis story. Mm-hmm. <sighs> we'll talk about that later, but um, you know, it, it's such an important character. Yeah, it was an enjoyable read. Yeah. Bert, good picks. Okay. Well done, my friend. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. For I, I I look forward to doing more of these. This, this is one of my favorite formats, actually. I, I right. dig this one quite a bit. Oh, I've got a long list. Excellent. <laughs> Sign me up. And if well, if you have any ideas, if either of you. Anybody I, present I in this room, even the, <laughs> the ghostly figure in the producer's chair, has any ideas, too. You know, we've been planning to do There's my little trouser boy. All right. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> That's all well, trouser wrong. Wow. There, there was an archer trio that I had in mind. I was thinking oh, of that, actually. And I was I thinking that, of that. That uh, Senor Pantalones was uh, kind of excited to, to do that one. So I'm Sign me up. That'll probably be Green Arrow, Hawkeye, and uh, Archer and Armstrong. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Fabulous. I, I kind of figured the first two. The third one, I was like, all right, who would you do? All Perfect. Right. That makes sense. I think yeah, we shot our good. bolt, gentlemen. All right. Right. This episode was brought to you by the fine folks at DCBService.com. Go to their website, get a hold of a copy of previews, and pre-order the heck out of a month one time. You'll, you won't regret it. Great prices and great service. That's DCBService.com. Visit us at ComicGeekSpeak.com. To send us an email, the address is ComicGeekSpeak at gmail.com. To leave us a voicemail, the number is 267-702-6642. Stop by The Comic Forums and let us know your experiences with these characters. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. We would like to thank everyone who contributes to the episode. We appreciate it and could not do it without you. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time. Hey everybody, Pants here. Uh, since I wasn't on this episode, uh, I thought I'd give a little post-credit uh, chat here. It's very quick. I just want to plug the uh, CGS iPhone app. Uh, we do have an iPhone app. It's available, of course, in the Apple Store. It's $1.99. Uh, on it, of course, you can play all of the episodes. Uh, but what uh, I like about it is uh, I can actually add some bonus content that you can only get on the app. Um, it's mostly things, uh, from the studio, like before or after recording, and it's not on every episode, but I, I, I put it on there just, uh, hopefully it entertains people to give a little behind the scenes thing. Uh, there probably is some things from this very episode on, uh, the, uh, the app. Um, but, uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, here's a, a listener email telling you all about it. Hi, Common Geek Speakers. This is Eric from the Longbox Review Podcast. Hey, I just wanted to send you this quick note to let you know that I've been really enjoying 
the um, extras on the CGS app for certain episodes. I've been listening to them for the last uh, approximately 20 episodes where you've had them. And I really enjoy the behind the scenes, the insider baseball, if you will, uh, listen to what goes on at at, uh, the Comic Geek Speak recording studio. I've also especially enjoyed listening to uh, surprise cut-ups, Murd and Shane, during these extra episodes. I mean, who would not love listening to Murd? And I believe it was Shane who who was doing Murd, Murd. Murd is the word. Come on, that's that's just comic gold right there. So I encourage you to keep doing those. They, they've been a lot of fun for me. They got me through a, a recent Friday morning at work, and I could not stop listening to them. Anyway, thanks, guys, and looking forward to your 10-year anniversary. Bye-bye.